Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Harder Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Brandon Wolf, a Pulse nightclub survivor, an LGBTQ rights activist and gun reform advocate. Brandon Wolf, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on. As I mentioned in that introduction, you survived the Pulse nightclub shooting back in 2016. It's still etched in everyone's minds that night on on watching that unfold. The deadliest incident of violence against LGBT people in the US, the second most deadly mass shooting by a single gunman in US history. At the time, it was the first most deadly mass shooting, and then it was surpassed a year later by the Las Vegas shooting. Before that happens, though, you weren't an outspoken activist as you are now. I believe you previously mentioned that you were a barista. What did you say after that moment? What changed in your mind where you went, I I can't sit back anymore. I can't stay quiet on these issues. I have to fight for things like gun reform, for equality, having seen what hate and violence can really do to, to a community. Yeah, you know, there are a couple of moments that stand out to me, uh, and they were right in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Um, One of those moments was a really personal one that I've only just uh, become comfortable and learned to be comfortable with sharing. Um, But about a week later after the shooting, I think it was the next Saturday, uh, we had a funeral service for my best friend, Drew. And the lead up to the funeral service was as difficult as you can imagine, but there's also a lot of logistical pieces to it, right? You got to pick a venue. Um, you've got to make sure that it's, you know, the right traveling distance from, uh, from the, from the funeral home. So there were all these considerations to put in place. And as we thought about where we wanted to have this funeral service, um, what we really debated the most was how big the venue should be. And we went back and forth. We looked at a couple of churches And we ultimately made the decision, along with Drew's family, that why don't we just get a nice big space um, that could seat eight or 900 people so that if we get a few hundred people that show up for the funeral, everyone has a seat. And I'll never forget showing up to the church that day. Um, There were huge crowds outside. And when we got inside the church, this building that could seat eight or 900 people, there were over a thousand people in there. Um, And... The power of that was that that was who Drew was. He was the person who brought our community closer together. He was the link through which everyone was connected. He was also the person that when you were friends with him would challenge you to do more for those around you, challenge you to be a better resource, a better outlet for your community. Um, And so I had the honor of uh, carrying the casket down the aisle with a few of his family members and friends And right before we came to the end of the aisle, I made a silent promise to him that I would never stop fighting for a world that he and his partner Juan would have been proud to live in. And that moment really changed everything for me. 
because I meant it. I truly meant it. And I didn't know exactly what that world would look like, uh, but I knew that I wouldn't ever stop fighting for it. So I made that promise to him in that moment. And the other thing that stands out to me is what I watched in the aftermath in terms of coverage. Uh, I didn't have cable news at the time, so I really didn't follow along with what the rest of the world was seeing uh, after the shooting. I had local news, but I didn't really understand the scope and scale of what was happening until I started to tune in through social media, uh, you know, popping in and watching my friends' TVs. And I just happened to catch an interview one day. It was on Fox News, so you already know how that made me feel. Um, and the interview was about Pulse in Orlando, and they were talking about our community. They were talking about the shooting, but they weren't actually talking about us. They weren't talking about queer people of color. They weren't talking about the gay men who were wrapped around the building trying to donate blood but weren't being allowed to because it's against the law in the United States. They weren't talking about the, the folks who were at Pulse that night, whose families may be undocumented who couldn't go forward to ask for the financial or mental health resources they needed because the gatekeepers to care were the FBI and they were concerned about being deported. So they weren't talking about how this issue was impacting people on the ground. They were talking about Donald Trump and his tweets. They were talking about Hillary Clinton and the presidential race and how this would impact politics as a whole. They were debating whether or not to call it a terrorist attack. But in the process, they were busy erasing voices like Drew's and voices like Juan's and voices like mine. And so it was kind of the, the pairing of that, that promise that I made to Drew that I would never stop fighting and watching the coverage begin to erase our community that forced me, I felt obligated to stand up and say something and fight back and push back uh, to ensure that that narrative didn't get away from us. You've done that through a, a number of measures, and we'll talk about a few of them through this interview, but one of them that you touched on there was honouring the memory of your friend Drew with the Drew Project, which you founded in the aftermath of this shooting. It's there to honour your friend's legacy and empower LGBTQ youth. How important are organisations like this, given the current climate to ensure that young LGBTQ individuals have that ability and that support to not just thrive and survive, but also have the ability to be those change makers in the world so they can create that positive life for themselves, but others that follow. Yeah, well, those organizations have always been critical, right? I think it's just amplified right now because of the climate that we're in as a country and as a globe. Um, but organizations like the Drew Project have existed to keep LGBTQ young people safe and also help them fully realize their potential. So the statistic that stands out to me, and it's not the reason that we launched the organization, but it's the one that I go back to often when times get a little challenging, is that we know that LGBT young people in the United States are exponentially more likely to consider and attempt suicide at some point during their youth. Uh, and that's because they face bullying and discrimination in school. It's because they feel alone in their environments. It's because the safe spaces that other students are able to have, like home or school or church, are not safe for those students. Um, and so we know that they're at exponentially higher risk for this uh, potential for self-harm. 
We also know that the presence of a Gay-Straight Alliance student club, a group that allows LGBT young people to come in and just be themselves in a safe environment with a supportive and uplifting sponsor that's an adult, um, we know that the presence of those groups reduces that suicide attempt rate by 50%. So we, we know that the presence of groups that allow young people to be themselves means they feel safer, means they feel more welcome, and it also gives them the ability to go off and achieve their potential. So groups like the Drew Project that support those gay-straight alliances, uh, that give them resources, give them access to capital, those are the, the groups that allow LGBT young people to thrive. Um, but we really formed the group for a specific purpose. And that was when Drew was in high school, this is in the year 2000, I think, uh, in rural Florida, he launched the first Gay-Straight Alliance program at his high school. He was very, very proud of that. It was a dangerous time to do that. Uh, LGBTQ people were not largely accepted socially. Uh, again, he was living in rural Florida, which meant it was probably physically dangerous for him to form this group, but he was passionate about it. He was passionate about LGBTQ young people having the opportunity to be themselves without fear of discrimination. Um, that Gay Straight Alliance student group is still alive and thriving today. And so when we wanted to create a legacy for him, we knew that we should just do exactly what Drew would be doing if he was here. Um, and as he went through his college career and into his work life, he had a master's degree in clinical psychology. He continued to bring that legacy with him. He loved to volunteer his time and his talents um, for LGBTQ young people. And so we knew that that was the avenue that the organization needed to take. Um, and our goal was every single year we award um, scholarships, college scholarships to aspirational LGBTQ young people. And we call them the Spirit of Drew Awards for a reason, because our hope is that the Drew Project can not only help to create spaces where LGBT young people can be themselves and thrive, but also that we can identify and help amplify future Drews in the world, future leaders who are gonna bring the community along with them. I can think of no better legacy for my best friend than to help cultivate future Congress people, uh, future mayors, future mental health specialists, future teachers, professors, future doctors from the LGBTQ community that will give us a real seat at the table. Looking at the issue of gun control in America, that idea of going to the source and addressing the fundamental issues that lead to gun violence is something that some individuals have proposed. And while there are people who, like yourself, want to see quick and immediate action on gun control, and certainly there are steps that can be taken to achieve that, there are others who look at the long-term view of seeking to secure societal changes, not just legislative ones, by educating younger generations about the benefits of gun control and the dangers of gun violence in America. Do you think that, given the current political climate and the challenges that that has presented in passing gun control legislation, is something that we should be seeking to focus on there, educating that next generation and going to write the source when they're able to learn about these issues before they have political views forced upon them by outside groups. They get to hear the facts and the real truth. 
Well, I don't think it's an either or situation. I think you've got to be able to do both at the same time. So I think we would be doing an extreme disservice to this generation and future generations if we were not loudly advocating for common sense gun safety reform right now. We have to do that, right? I think about the aftermath of Parkland. Um, Parkland is not far from Orlando, and in many ways, our communities are now stitched together through tragedy. Um, we've gotten to know each other, the, the parents, the survivors, um, and I know that the shooting in Parkland touched people in Orlando very deeply. Um, but I think about how those students went to Tallahassee, which is our state's capital, just after the shooting. And they did not back down. They were relentless. At the same time that they had amassed 25,000 people outside our state's capital, they were also inside the state capital lobbying legislators. And they came very prepared. I remember they came with a questionnaire that said, I've got five questions for you. And they're yes or no questions. And I just want to get you on the record. Uh, so that we can publicize who is supporting and not supporting these common sense policies. And as lawmakers would try to wiggle around an answer or, you know, meander through their policy positions, these students held firm and said, I'm, I'm asking you a yes or no question. Do you support this particular policy? So I think we have to do that work, and we've seen it pay dividends. Uh, after the shooting in Parkland, Florida passed the first gun safety regulations in our state in almost 25 years. Uh, and so you know it works when there's the right kind of public pressure at the right moment, um, you know, put on lawmakers in the right way, we're able to make real substantive change. And we have seen that happening across the country. It's also important, I think, in the medium term. So if that's the short-term immediate need solution, the medium term is continuing to elect a different kind of politician. We have seen a shift in that direction. You think about groups like Moms Demand Action and March for Our Lives. They've done an incredible job at amplifying the voices of political candidates who actually believe in doing something different around gun violence, who don't just sweep it under the rug or pretend like it's not happening or give you the usual runaround answers as to why it's too difficult for us to fix. These are candidates who have said out loud, I am going to run, I'm going to win, and when I win, I'm going to support common sense gun safety reform. And those candidates are winning across the country. In 2018, in the midterms, not only did we see an incredible wave of women and of people of color swept into office, we also saw an incredible wave of folks who believe in common sense gun safety reform swept into office. Uh, over 40 NRA-backed candidates were defeated in 2018, which tells you that public sentiment is shifting. So I think the short term is we've got to continue to advocate for immediate change that needs to happen right now. And we will not ever stop doing that. The medium uh, solution, the medium term solution is to elect new politicians that actually believe in getting something done. And then the long term solution, to your point, is about re-educating people. It's about waging a public education campaign, and specifically with young people, to help them understand, to help our entire society understand what we are up against in terms of gun violence, to help people see it as the public health crisis that it is, and to help young people be educated enough to understand that common sense gun safety reform does not mean a repeal of the Second Amendment, that ensuring if my dad took a background check that everybody has to take a background check is not an infringement upon people's rights, but rather it is a common sense limitation 
on a right that is not limitless. So I think we have to do all three of those things. I think all three of them are possible. That's why different organizations exist to do each of those things. But I do think they're all really important to getting the job done. When it comes to getting gun safety legislation through Congress, the National Rifle Association has done everything in its power to stop any step, however big, however small, to implement such reforms to make America safer, to reduce the amount of gun violence in America, because they claim that every effort that is made by individuals like yourself, and I'm sure you had interactions on social media and people tweeting at you and messaging you from this sort of viewpoint, who say that any steps on gun safety legislation is infringing their Second Amendment rights. When you've got such opposition from people out there like that, and the NRA now is a fading organization, we've seen about its financial issues, so might not be a problem for much longer. But the individuals that believe in that will continue to claim that efforts like yours are infringing on their Second Amendment rights. How do you convince those people, or is there a way to convince those people? that this isn't about taking away their Second Amendment rights. They'll still be able to access and purchase firearms in America. This is just about making the country safer for everyone, including them. How do you, how do you convince them of that? Well, it's a great question. It's sort of the million-dollar question, right? Um, but some of the talking points that you just mentioned, that you know, any attempt to legislate firearms in our country constitutes an infringement upon the Second Amendment, those talking points are created and pushed to benefit gun manufacturers and the gun lobby. That is their sole purpose, right? The, the, the gun lobby and gun manufacturers benefit when more people want to own guns, when more people see any legislation as an attack on their gun ownership rights, um, they stand to benefit in a situation where we continue to believe that there should be no regulation on gun purchases at all. So people have to ask themselves, first and foremost, follow the money. Who stands to make the most money if we don't find a way to control our gun violence problem in the United States? And the answer is the gun manufacturers and the gun lobby. So they've done a really good job for a long time dominating the conversation. They've written the talking points. They've pumped them out into the universe. They've created a swath of the population that buys it still to this day. And in order to combat it, you have to do a couple of things. First of all, bankrupting the NRA is a great start. Uh, and we really didn't have to work that hard because their corruption did it themselves. But that's a great start because the NRA was basically acting as an arm of the gun manufacturers and the gun lobby. Gun manufacturers and the lobby had spent tens of millions of dollars propping up the NRA. And you have to imagine that in return for that, they were expecting that their return on investment would be a continuation of these talking points pumped into the universe. So taking care of the NRA and managing that arm of the gun lobby is a great place to start. But I think you've got to fill that vacuum with the public education campaign that I mentioned, right? You've got to have real dialogue about gun safety in our country. I think about um, my dad, for instance. My dad and I don't agree on a lot of things. 
Um, we certainly don't agree on gun safety policy. Uh, he is a proud gun owner. He, uh, I think he has more than one AR-15 at this point. Um, and we disagree on a lot of what should happen next with the country. Um, we disagree on a ban on assault weapons, for instance. Um, we disagree on, you know, I, I think we disagree a bit on red flag laws. But at the end of the day, what we do is we sit down and we talk to each other as father and son. We talk to each other as two human beings. And we say, okay, if we can't agree on these couple of issues, why don't we start with where we can agree on? Dad, you took a background check when you had to purchase that weapon. And if you took a background check, wouldn't it make you feel safer sending your kid to the neighbor's house knowing that he, the parent, the dad over there, took the background check to get his gun as well? Why wouldn't that make you feel safer knowing that if you had to take one to make sure that you were not a violent criminal who did not need to have your hands on a firearm, to get that gun, why shouldn't he have to take one too? And wouldn't that make you feel safer sending your kid across the street to go play? And then we find that common ground and we work from there. So I think you've got to tackle it in a couple of ways. First of all, you've got to go hard after the organizations that continue to push false talking points to scare people into submission, to scare Congress into doing nothing. You've got to take those head on. And I think the students from Parkland have shown us that that's possible. In the age of social media, you do not need a massive PR firm to be able to take on groups like the NRA. You just need some angry teenagers with Twitter figures. Um, and then I think the other thing you have to do is fill the vacuum left by those talking points with logic. You've got to sit down across the table with real people, people that you know, people in your community. You've got to host town halls, dinner parties, and talk about issues as they impact your community, not big, nebulous ideas, not red and blue, left or right, but just two people sitting across the table and saying, how does this impact me? And what do I really believe in and where can we find common ground? I think if we do both of those things really well, that's when you see the tide shifting in the country and you do feel it shifting right now. With the tide shifting, there's been a lot of talk about the steps that should be made to address gun violence. And some of the ones that you've talked about in the past have been red flag laws, banning high capacity magazines, banning bump stocks, and one that's probably the most controversial suggestion that's been made by uh, gun safety advocates is the proposal that America should follow the likes of Australia and New Zealand and ban AR-15 semi-automatic weapons and implement potentially a buyback scheme to get those weapons entirely off American streets. Would you be supportive of that? And do you think that, regardless of whether you're supportive of it or, or not, whether that would in a way be a realistic proposal that could ever be achieved? I think we need in this country, a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. I believe that from the very beginning. Um, I know that that doesn't sit well with some folks. I understand that there are lots of people in the country who don't agree with me. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of our politics is that we're able to disagree in that way. Uh, I, I simply do not see a realistic need in today's society for assault weapons and high capacity magazines outside of trying to kill 
or maim as many people in a short amount of time as possible. I think about the shooting in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and first of all, that was the first mass shooting site that I went to after my own. Uh, it was disorienting. It was um, saddening. And I remember in that moment feeling transported back to my own tragedy. There was the same site. It was a club, all boarded up. There were crosses out front with flowers kind of dying in the sun. There were people crying and holding each other in their arms. And it felt too familiar. Once again, I was standing in a community where people did what they always did. They committed the crime of going out for a drink with their friends. And because of that, they came under gunfire. And I think about what happened in Dayton. And what happened was the man who committed that crime had access to a firearm and a magazine. If you've not seen the magazine, I encourage everyone to Google it. The magazine that that man used at the shooting in Dayton, Ohio. He used a firearm and a magazine that allowed him to kill or maim dozens of people in the less than one minute it took for police to take him down. There is no reasonable application for that kind of firearm in a civilized society like the one we have today. I simply can't see it. So yes, I believe that we need a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. You asked if it's realistic. The most frustrating part about talking about banning assault weapons is that we have already done it in this country. It's not some far-fetched idea that ultra left-wing progressives cooked up in the last five years to try and get their hands on people's guns. This is a policy that has already happened in the United States. It existed for a decade. And the most frustrating part about that is that it worked. It wasn't like it happened and it was a failure. We actually saw the number of mass violence incidents at the, at the hands of an assault weapon stagnate and decrease under the assault weapons ban that existed. But Congress let it expire under a Republican president. And now here we are in a situation where mass casualty incidents where uh, an assault weapon and a high capacity magazine are used have skyrocketed. We call Florida the gunshine state. And the reason for that is because it sometimes feels like the wild, wild west. We got the shooting at the Fort Lauderdale airport, the shooting at Pulse nightclub, the shooting in Parkland. It feels like you can't go anywhere without fear of attack from someone with an assault weapon. So not only do I think that we need a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines, I also don't think it's far-fetched or unrealistic. And I say that because we've done it before, it's possible, it worked, we need to do it again. That's a point that I think is often overlooked in this conversation on the federal assault weapons ban that previously existed in America, the 1994 assault weapons ban that was signed into law by Bill Clinton and then was allowed to expire, as it had that significant impact on America and shows that gun control legislation really does have the ability to work it. And and if I can, I just, I want to reemphasize the point that it works, right? Because people often come back and, 
and say, well, but it's, you know, it's not the guns, it's the people, it's the mental health aspect, um, which is a whole other conversation that, you know, I'd love to chat with you <laughs> another time about because the same folks who argue that it's mental health that is the problem also want to defund mental health services in our country. But you get all of these talking points about it. it's all these things except the guns. But when you take all of that away, when you take the rhetoric and the talking points and the this is how I feel away and you just look at the data, the studies have shown that states in this country who've instituted the right targeted policies to ensure that high risk folks, people who are at risk of committing violent crime, do not get their hands on firearms, what happens? The homicide rate in those states drops by over 30%. So we know the science, the data tells us that common sense gun safety reform works. We know because it's been tried and worked in the past. So all of the confusion, all of the talking points, those are all rhetoric crafted and perfected by the gun manufacturers and the gun lobby to try to convince us that this problem is too large to solve so that we don't get anything done so they continue to pad their bottom line. If we want to change America, if we want to change the world, the only way that can be done is through activists out there promoting positive messages, fighting for the things that they believe in. And as we discussed earlier, you're a young activist who was thrust into the political conversation, not through choice, but through the actions of others around you and the lack of action from politicians who are there to represent you. So finally, what would be your closing message to other activists or potential future activists out there from the last few years of you fighting for LGBTQ rights, fighting against gun violence, fighting against hate, what would be your closing message to those individuals? What have you learned? What would you like them to know so they can, like you're doing, go out there and change society for the better? There are so many things that I've learned, um, but my mind is kind of settling on maybe two big points. The first one is to feel confident knowing that fighting for a society that treats everyone with dignity and respect, fighting for a society that keeps people safe, fighting for a society that values the lives of its citizens over the dollars in its pockets, fighting for that society that every single one of us deserve, that Drew and Juan would have been proud to live in, is an act of patriotism. That every day you get up, and you fight for that brighter future, you are doing more than some of these elected officials have done in their entire careers in public office. You are showing more political courage than many of the people who cash federal checks every two weeks. So know that all of the work is valued. Know that all of the work is important and know that that is truly how we move our country forward. When folks are putting their stories on the line, when folks are sitting down across from difficult tables to have difficult conversations to really uh, move the needle. That, for me, is the first one, that, that all of this work is truly an act of political courage and patriotism, and, and people should rest easy in that. And the other piece that I would say is take care of yourselves because it's a long journey. Um, there is this feeling when you first start sharing your story, at least there was for me, 
that you expect your story to have the same kind of impact on policymakers, the same kind of impact on legislative change as it has on the people that you're sharing it with, right? I, I've told my story probably hundreds of times by now. And every time you can feel that people are personally invested in the story. They're moved by what happened at Pulse. They're horrified to learn the fate of my best friends. But that same passion and emotion and energy isn't reflected in the changes being made in Washington, D.C., in the state capitol. And so my advice is don't get weary and take care of yourself because change happens slowly. It's not going to be tomorrow that we see sweeping federal change on gun safety laws. It's not going to be tomorrow that all of these feckless politicians who've gotten away with doing nothing for so long are swept out of office. These things won't happen tomorrow. They start building block by building block. They start neighborhood by neighborhood. They start community by community until they're a wave that can't be stopped. That means that we need activists, that we need advocates at their full strength. It means it's okay to pass the baton for a day and let somebody else handle it. The movement will not fall apart while you're gone, I promise. It means it's okay to suffer defeat sometimes. It's okay to run for office and lose. It's okay to fight for a policy change and not get it. It's okay because you patch your wounds, you rest up, and tomorrow you get back and you fight again. That is the act of patriotism. That's the act of political courage. Um, know that your work is valued, know it's important, and know that you have an entire community around you telling you to take care of yourself for the long haul. Brandon Wolf, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. That was Brandon Wolf, Pulse nightclub survivor, LGBTQ rights activist, and gun reform advocate. You can find out more about him on Twitter at BJoeWolf and Equality Florida at EqualityFL. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.